Rockheads. This is Carl with an update on Music to Code By. On January 4th, 2016, I released the 11th Music to Code By track, Gold. That's right, there are now 11 25-minute tracks, including the original three. And you can download them all in one big zip file for less than 50 bucks at mtcb.pwop.com. Dotnet Rocks, episode 1244, with guest Stephen Hans. Recorded Thursday, December 17th, 2015. Hey, 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 it's time for Dotnet Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin. And I'm Richard Campbell. And we're here for another hour. Stephen Hans is with us today talking about cryptography. But first, my friend. Yes. We are in the midst of a travel bonanza. We're actually, as this comes out, we're finishing up NDC. Yes. In London. In and London. We're headed to Scotland for Scotnet Rocks. Yeah, this, that following NDC on the weekend, we head up to Glasgow. Three shows. I think it's Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, right? right? Glasgow. Edinburgh and Aberdeen. Right. And then it's a trip through the Spey. Yeah, that's going to be a shame. Uh, and uh, I just got word <laughs> that the Dalmore is going to be closed, so we're yeah. not going to go up there. We're just going to stay in Spey. Oh, well. That's a shame. We'll find something else to do. I'll find a way, somehow. I'll find some little pub filled with scotch to drown my sorrows in. Oh, that's that's terrible. I do suffer so. I know. All right, roll the music, because I've got something pretty amazing for a Better Know Framework today. All right, buddy, what do you got? Or shall we call it the other name, Better Know the Internet? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the framework's kind of known these days. Yeah. There's all sorts of great stuff out there to help, including this. Uh, startssl.com. Have you seen this? Now, what is this? Startssl.com, called the Swiss Officer's Knife of Digital Certificates and PKI, is offering a product called StartSSL free. It's a free class one digital certificate powered by Startcom, free of charge. Nice. It says from their website, they provide modest assurances and are meant to secure personal websites, public forums, or web mail. Verification is done automatically and instantly by electronic means, and mostly without the interference and involvement of our personnel. (laughs) So uh, Start SSL Free supports web server certificates, SSL and TLS, right? SSL slash TLS. Client and mail certificates, which are S slash MIME, 128 and 256-bit encryption, uh, United States $10,000 insurance guaranteed and valid for one year, and then I love this. No kidding, 100% free. Nice. But here's the thing. If you go to their homepage at startssl.com, you'll see this open identity thing that they also have. Every Start SSL account is also a free digital identity called OpenID. In OpenID, we've talked about many times, eliminates the need for multiple usernames across different websites. And basically, they've got this USB token key that they're selling. So that's where they get you. Yeah, they, they have products to sell as well. Sure. You know, there's, there's also Let's Encrypt at letsencrypt.org that's mm-hmm. trying to make SSL free as well. Yep. And they're working on a donation basis. It's really cool. And, I, you know, I, ha- I have to give my general disclaimer here. I have not used this. I have not signed up. I don't know what the browser does when you go to, you know, a startssl.com uh, key uh, site. But uh, it, they promise that it works seamlessly. And I've heard a lot of cool things and a lot of tweets about it just in the last week. So that's why I decided to uh, showcase it here. Well, we're getting to a place where everything should be encrypted all the time, so it kind of makes sense. Yep. All right, dude. Yeah, that's what I got. Awesome. Pretty appropriate. Who's talking to us? 
grabbed a comment off of show 1157, the one we did with Troy Hunt, where we talked about SQL injection and security issues. Certainly encryption was part of that conversation as mm-hmm. well, right? Because it's, it's sort of a constant, constant issue right. uh, going on around here. And this comment comes from Edward Bray, who says, thanks for educating developers on security. Lots of great advice in the show. Chances are my own data will one day end up on systems that your listeners will write. So it's not with entirely altruistic motives that I'd like to call the attention to a couple of anti-patterns in the authentication scheme that was put forth. Uh, One, don't use GUIDs as secrets. As mentioned, sending a GUID in the link to the user. The problem is that attackers can predict GUIDs. They can even log in without getting the authentication message. GUIDs are designed to be unique and quick to create, but not necessarily hard to guess. Instead, use something designed for security like .NET's random number generator class and the Base64 encode to random bytes. Mm. Don't email secrets. Email isn't secure. This is part of the reason sites with sensitive data require more than just clicking on an email link to reset a password. Mm-hmm. Although resetting a password with a link is fine. You just you can't actually say what it's going to be set to. It should be randomized and then emailed back and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. On the topic of trusting mobile apps to do the right thing with your data, such as not send them over unsecured HTTP, ultimately it comes down to trusting the makers of the app. And that always goes well. <laughs> Even if the app sends data properly, it could still end up on a server or the developer's laptop that's not secured properly or transmitted to a partner company. Uh, and the list goes on and on. There's no easy answer to this, but as social beings, we're used to making trust judgments based on reputation. Mm-hmm. The key to my house contains a secret sequence of metal cuts. I only give it to neighbors I trust. Bottom line for the web, only share your sensitive information to the level you trust you have in a company. Mm-hmm. Choosing a VPN provider is another example. If their exit server is compromised, all your traffic is easy prey for the attacker. So you need to trust them. Personally, any company wants me to install security software digitally signed with not signed (laughs) goes on my do not trust list. Right. Uh, And one more note about VPNs. If the traffic you care about securing goes over HTTPS, skip the VPN and its performance hit. Uh, Troy saw good throughput, but that only says that the speed limit on the exit server's digital highway matched that of the ISP. The problem is that latency of the extra hop that the VPN introduces. Driving provides an analogy. Regardless of the posted speed limits, you'd like to complain if you had to drive from New London to Providence by way of Boston. <laughs> That's true. Uh, and, you know, in the end, these are all just different encryption strategies one way or the other. Uh, you know, the, the big power of VPNs is not just the encryption. I think Troy brought this up on in the... Uh, as a com reply to this particular comment, it's not VPNs aren't just about encrypting stuff. They're also about anonymity. You're mm-hmm. redirecting your traffic. Yeah. So uh, it, it's one level of indirection in terms of where your data actually comes from. Either way, all good points, Edward. Thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social media. We post every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And of course, you can tweet us He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. We eat tweets for breakfast and sometimes for lunch. And that brings us to our guest. Stephen Hans is an experienced software developer and leader who has worked across multiple business domains, including computer games, finance, and healthcare, retail, and distribution. Stephen has worked in languages ranging from assembler, various forms of basic to C and C++, then finding his love of C Sharp and .NET. Stephen also runs a software development and leadership blog called Coding in the Trenches, which can be read at stephenhaunts.com, and that's with a PH. Yeah. Stephen also runs a small music label and sound design company where he sculpts sounds from bizarre sound sources like circuit bend, speak, and spells, and Furbies. Circuit bend? Okay. This site is hauntedhouserecords.co.uk. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, how you doing? Uh, doing great. That's Furbies are evil. I'd just like to say that for the record. You know, this reminds me of something I just saw where somebody took recordings of crickets and slowed them down, and eerily, they sound like human singing. Mm, weird. Weird. Is that the kind of stuff that you like to do? Yeah, I mean, with the circuit bending, what you do is you get old preferably sort of children's toys from the uh, from the 1980s and you basically start rewiring the insides so when you set them off they just go absolutely crazy <laughs> and 
a Furby is a particular favorite of mine. Furbies I mean, are it's, horrible. It's, and their batteries a, last forever. We had a Furby in a box somewhere in the basement we'd forgotten about, and you touch the box, and it starts talking. Like, oh, man. It's super creepy. Yeah, I mean, those toys are possessed. They're brilliant. Uh, they're possessed. Uh, but but what I, what, I, what I like doing is you, you get these toys and you rewire them and then you record them at really high resolution and then you can, as you sort of slow them down, it's that stretching tape, you get these really eerie soundscapes coming out of them and that's right. kind of the sort of the sound design stuff I like doing. <laughs> so have you done it with crickets yet? <laughs> no, but I think I should. Yeah, apparently it sounds like, you know, operatic singing. It's a really long held note. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. I love it. So, well, and just hacking old toys is really interesting anyway, just because, yeah, you could make them go completely spazzy. This, the kinds of things we've had as toys over the years, I don't know, maybe we're just not exposed to it anymore because we don't have little kids anymore. Mm. Although, near as I can tell, there's only one toy that children want anymore, and it's an iPad. Yeah, nice toy. I, I was happy with a Viewmaster. Yeah, and look how you yeah. turned out. I know. <laughs> I mean, the problem these days is most toys are too digital. So if you try and rewire the insides, you're just going to blow them up. Whereas, <laughs> yeah, they're not going to do lo- anything then. None of the mechanicals they used to have. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the older toys from the 80s, I mean, they could take quite a bit of punishment. I mean, you'd, you'd be wiring pins for chips, you know, to different pins, and they could take quite a lot of uh, rewiring. <laughs> That's funny. But if you make one mistake in, in sort of modern digital stuff, you've cooked it. It's garbage. Well, yeah, you kind of have to know your way around electronics somewhat to not blow up things when you just start resoldering pins. It'd be easy to blow the resistors, the final resistor. Too much input, too much output, not enough resistance here or there. Yeah, but because Furbies are possessed anyway, it's pretty much difficult to <laughs> blow them up. Yeah, the Furbies <laughs> come from the factory possessed. Everything else you have to actually modify. <laughs> Do you know that? Have you ever had a Furby, Carl? Do you know what we're talking about? I know exactly what you're talking about, and no, they were banned in my house. They've just, they're demonic. They are demonic. They are little, little devils. But great sounding devils. Right. Yes. <laughs> if, if you're collecting <laughs> odd sounds, anyway. that's all a Furby produces is odd sounds. All right. Shall we talk about encryption? How do you encrypt a Furby anyway? <laughs> uh, I think you do I think the Furby encrypts you yeah. <laughs> uh. the commenter um, made a few good points all pretty much common sense to me is there anything that you wanted to add to that conversation yeah I mean the, the bit that was interesting we were saying about uh, not using GUIDs as random numbers and I completely agree with that I mean in, in the .NET framework there's a class called RND crypto service provider and that really is your friend when you need to generate a random number Mm-hmm. And definitely don't use system.random, because that's probably the worst random number generator you could use for cryptography. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's predictable, and it's not thread safe. Are you talking about system.security.cryptography.random number generator, or are you just talking about system.random? So the one you want to use is um, system.security.rnd crypto service provider. Okay. And where the one you don't want to use is uh, plain system.random. Yeah, I mean it's okay if you're trying to simulate dice throws, that that sort of random number, mm-hmm. but not not for cryptography or generating keys. Yeah, so when your random number is between one and six, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you don't seed it every time that you get a new one, you're going to probably get the same thing again, aren't you? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So what is it about the the uh, the one that you mentioned that makes it so much better? Uh, so the R&D crypto service provider, I mean, for a start, it's thread safe, which, um, which certainly helps, but the numbers that you get from it, are sort of pretty much more assured to be actual random numbers. So if you're generating a, um, an encryption key, for say mm-hmm. AES, and you want a 256 bit encryption key, you just pass in a an empty 32 byte array and it will just give you 32 bytes of absolute garbage or random garbage, more importantly. Uh-huh. As long but as it's if, random. But then, if you, but then if you repeat that operation again straight after, the number you get out will just be completely different. Which is good. That's what you want. Absolutely. All right. I mean, we had to talk about cryptography, but it's almost like one of those terrible subjects, right? How do you make 
How do you make cryptography interesting, Stephen? I mean, is the first thing we want to say, don't write your own? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, you know, for an academic exercise, if you just want to sort of dig into how a lot of these cryptography algorithms work, then writing your own is probably a good learning exercise, but never use it for anything real. Yeah, because you're so wrong. A- You've made a mistake. It's virtually guaranteed. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the uh, algorithms that that you find in sort of .NET, I mean, they've gone through years and years of research by very clever people. Yeah. In the cryptography section, because clearly the random number generator and system did not. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, very smart people in that particular space. Uh, I mean, we've done a bunch of shows in the past little while about different security issues, and one of them was just like, stop storing passwords. You don't need them. Uh, really, you should you you should be avoiding handling login yourself entirely. There are services for that, but if you are going to store passwords, you need to store them as hashes. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Raygun Pulse. You know about Raygun, that error in crash reporting software. Well, they've just launched Pulse. It's a real user monitoring product that gives you real time performance data and user insights, letting you understand exactly what's happening when users interact with your software. Never be left guessing. Raygun provides you with the answers to your performance questions. Having found over 10 billion bugs in customer apps with their crash reporting product, Raygun now lets you understand application quality like no one else. Over 30,000 developers worldwide can't be wrong. Try it out today with a no-risk 30-day free trial. Check them out at raygun.io. But there are good hashes and bad hashes? Well, I think we should start with what's a hash. Well, a hash is a, um, it's, it's kind of like an encryption algorithm, but not quite. So a hash is designed to be one way. So if you take a piece of text or your password and you run it through a hashing algorithm, you get what looks like random data coming out the other end, but then you shouldn't be able to go from that random data back to the initial password. Right. It doesn't actually contain the data. It's a derivative, right? It is. Yeah. So whereas normal encryption is a two-way process, so you encrypt with a key and then you can decrypt with the same key to get the password back, with a hash, you shouldn't be able to go the other way. Now, there's, there's various different hashing algorithms you can use, and some of them have been proven to be broken, and you shouldn't use them, although a lot of companies, unfortunately, still do. And we should also say, even before we go there, that the benefit of hashing is that you can compare hashes, and that's how you match passwords, for example. You take the password that was sent in, you hash it, and you take the, the you compare it to the hash that's in the database, and uh, that's that's how they're used. And that was a little bit confusing to me at first, so I just want to make sure people understand that. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. So at no point once once you put a password into a system, at no point should anyone ever see that plain text password again. So right. it goes without saying that you know if we if we treat this as a load of rungs of ladders at the at the at the bottom end of the scale is you know storing passwords in the clear and you should just never do that right you know i wouldn't be surprised if there's still some systems out there that do that but yeah we hear just, about them in the news <laughs> yeah i mean it, it's just a bad idea i mean you might as well not have any security at all so then the level above storing clear text passwords so before before we get onto hashing i mean one thing you could say is well why don't we just encrypt passwords with something like aes or triple des or one of the algorithms that you can right. get um, in, in .NET and mm. You know, that could work. That, that's fine. But then the problem you've got at that point is you you then need to manage the keys that you're using to encrypt those passwords. Mm-hmm. And key management, as we'll sort of come on to a bit later, is a really hard thing to do effectively. Right. But then it also makes you think, well, why would you want to encrypt with a two-way um, encryption algorithm? Because you never really need to go back. You should never be able to recover the password. Right. You also, you're liable if you can recover it and and see it yourself. You, Absolutely. You, you're liable for it. Yeah, I mean, in, especially in some regulated environments. I mean, I'm, I'm currently working for a healthcare provider, so we store, you know, patient medical records. And, you know, if if you've got any way of getting into a system using a password that's reversible and someone can actually sort of get into any of that data, I mean, you're you're done at that point. Right. You're, you're, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. But the, I mean, the, but the, ver- the salient point here is you hash it because you never need to decrypt it. The medical data, presumably you need to decrypt it, so you don't hash that. For the medical data, you do, yeah. But, I mean, if you've got a, a system like a dispensing platform, like use right. that example, because that's something I'm working on at the moment. I mean, you have passwords to allow the pharmacist and the dispensers to access that system. Mm-hmm. 
But if that system has a way of recovering those passwords underneath it from a, a tool that's being used in a pharmacy, then you know you've got a potential attack vector there where someone can get into that system, you right. know, potentially re- recover these passwords so they can get into your database. And if there's any way they can also get those keys because you're not storing the keys properly, yeah, then 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 you've let them in. So generally the the, the, you know, the historic way that people go about protecting their passwords is to use a hash, as we've already discussed. And there's mm. there's different hash algorithms out there. Okay. So that ranges from MD5 through to the say the secure hash family, so SHA1 and SHA256, etc. Um, but hash, uh, sorry, but the MD5 hashing algorithm is already proven to be broken. So it's possible for an attacker to actually reverse a hash on an MD5. So that's effectively made that not usable anymore. And and it, I mean, this is the one where you actually could type the hash into Google and Google will come back with the password for you. There's plenty of websites which will let you do that as well. And um, on my, I did a Pluralsight course on this very subject and I actually sort of do a live demo using a website, I think it's called crackstation.net. Mm-hmm. Whereas part of the demonstrations, we go in and we sort of actually take some hashes in MD5, run them through this system and recover the passwords. And it just shows how just how easy it is. And, wh- and what are they actually doing under the hood? Do they just have a table of all these common passwords or or are they actually brute forcing through all the variations? Like what, what happens if they're able to do this? A website like that is more likely to use what's called a rainbow table attack where they have right. a massive pre-computed list of um, passwords or words that have been hashed. Right. And it'll even have different combinations. You know, when you get people trying to be clever, like changing some of the vowels for numbers. Right. Yep. Like a, a three instead of an E. It will have all of those combinations in there because they're very cheap to compute. Right. So hard. Well, and it, one of the things I've been reading about is the fact that so many password breaches have happened that it's like the top 20 million most common passwords yeah. are now out in the wild. And so they just pre computed all these hashes for them. Right. Yeah. I mean, a, a very. A um, good example in the press recently was the uh, toy company VTech. I mean, yep. their password database was compromised, and it turned out they were using MD5 hashes. And and that's quite scary. I mean, even more scary than, say, a financial hack, because these toys are, you know, they're like, you know, tablets designed to be used by kids. So you've got kids using them, they're, you know, taking photos and videos, and they're being stored. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's quite frightening that that level of privacy is being invaded by such a simple hashing algorithm that can be cracked so easily. We've uh, discovered, and I've started using uh, passphrases, which are easy to remember, especially if they're really surreal, which is good, you know, because nobody's going to guess that. And throw in some numbers in there and throw in some, uh, uh, throw in some capitals and some periods and spaces, and it th- turns out those are really easy to remember and really hard to crack. I've got a really good story about passphrases, actually, because my, my mother-in-law, so my, my wife's mum, um, we told her exactly that when she got her new broadband sort of set up in her house. Mm-hmm. And we said to use a passphrase because it's more secure. Mm-hmm. And she used the most complex passphrase that so we have ever seen. Couldn't remember and it. it, it well, she could remember it, but it was literally like her life story about when she met her partner. <laughs> it <laughs> oh was that my long. God. <laughs> and we, and we all went up there at Christmas and like last Christmas, you know, the first thing you want to do is you want to get on the Wi-Fi network. Yeah. So it was me and my sort of, uh, my wife and my brother-in-law and, and my sister-in-law, we we're all sitting there trying to type this password and we've got the password written down in front of us right <laughs> and we're trying to type the thing in it it took us ages to get it right because the thing was so but it's long. a paragraph yeah it doesn't have to be a paragraph no i mean that that's probably overkill but i mean that is probably one of the most secure passwords i've ever seen so i, right. so I, I, t- I, I tip my hat to my mother-in-law right nice so secure nobody can even get in <laughs> yeah there's a great xkcd comic on password strength and it, and, it, and it comes down to length, right? I mean, that's what matters most is length. Absolutely. Once, the, once, the, once you're, you know, at, at 25, 30 characters long, hacking that takes forever. It does. I mean, because trying to pre-compute a table with, with that many characters becomes a lot harder to do. Sure. Um, absolutely. But unfortunately, people still use passwords and they still like passwords because they're easy for them to remember, which is a, which is a, a shame. And you, and you get people, you know, picking very bad passwords, like, you know, their partner's name, you know, with a six at the end, you know, in the hope that that's going to make it more secure. Does does the hashing algorithm matter if you've got, rain, if you're using a password that's on a rainbow table? No, I mean, I'd say it wouldn't, because 
if if an attacker knows what um, hashing algorithm has been used, then they can just run it through that pre-computed table. Right, right. And that and that kind of takes us on to the next level. So we we determined that just hashing by itself is not really a good idea anymore. So now what people do is they do a hash plus assault. An assault really is just a long piece of random data that you append to the end of your password before you hash it. Yeah. And, you know, a, a common way of doing that is you use a random number generator like we, dis- like we discussed previously, and you might generate, you know, 32 bytes of random garbage. Mm-hmm. You append it to your password, hash it, and then you store that hash password and the salt in your database. Right. And, of course, that makes pre- pre-computing a rainbow table a lot more difficult, but not impossible in theory. I mean, when you have um, like graphics processing units these days that can process billions of attempts per second at cracking a password. And there's no way that uh, hashing the salt and seeing the hash of it can give away the salt, right? In other words, somebody couldn't see the salt and then the, the hash and say, ah, I see that by this hash they were using MD5. Um, no, you shouldn't be able to. Definitely not. Yeah. I mean, you've just described it as you store the hash and you store the salt. Right. So if you've had a complete breach and somebody's taken that data, they're just going to have to recompute the rainbow table with your salt. Right. Although it's a different yeah. salt for every entry. Yeah. It is. So, I mean. Slows that it down. Is, that, is, that is a definite downside. If someone does compromise your database and steal the entire database, then then you are snookered from that point of view. But of course, you won't necessarily want to store your hash in the same table or the same database as what you're storing right. your passwords. Okay. It might be a good idea to sort of split them and store them elsewhere. But I mean, there still is that problem that someone could. But even if they have gotten your your salted hashes and all the salts that they're related to, they're going to have to recompute the rainbow table for each salt. Oh, yeah, sure. Because the salts are all different. So it's just, you know, look, if they wanted to work hard, they wouldn't be thieves. Well, you know, the cynic in me says, well, once we have quantum computing, this is all moot. Anyway, we're going to have to come up with a new scheme. Yeah, but throwing up your hands and saying we're doomed is actually a strategy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, I mean, one of the things you want to do is you, if you've got an attacker and they're trying to compromise your company, I mean, effectively, you, you want to shift that risk so that they have to do so much work. Right. to get your passwords that it just becomes not worth their time in doing it. So right. if you're if you're a small website, you know, is it going to be worth their time trying to break into you? Probably not. I mean, VTech, you know, I'm not quite sure what their goal was when they broke into there, but I mean, it was made fairly easy because of the passwords. They didn't have to do much work to get in there. This gets back to the whole, you know, the club concept. The club doesn't make your car impossible to steal. It makes it harder to steal than the other guy's car, so they don't bother with yours. You know, something really dumb that I see is when you go to register yourself on a website and they have rules for the password, like it can only be this many characters or usually what you see is it must, it it can't have uh, special characters. I like that one because, you know, I'm all for having to require a special character, but if you put in, uh, you know, a, a pound sign or or a carrot, or something like that. It complains. What? What is that? Oh well. Hey, Richard. You know what time it is? I uh, must be that happy time again. Yes, it's time for me to promise that I will not make a gratuitous joke about corn bite hash with a dash of salt, or low salt hash, or salty hash, or any sort of hashy salty joke. I promise. How's that working out for you? <laughs> You have my word. Okay. Right now. You sure? No, not really. Okay. Uh, see what I did there? Actually, it's time to give away a D experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best, without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Samuel Cazelli from Brazil. Ah. Congratulations, Sam. 
golf clap for you, sir. All right. My brother Jay just snuck in the studio. He's clapping for you, too, Samuel. Nice. All right. Well, uh, Samuel just won the D experience subscription. That's a big pile of awesome from Dev Express. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .NET rocks.com, click on the big get free stuff button, answer a few questions and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET rocks fan club, but you got to sign up to win. And Stephen Hans, it's your turn. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology, and I know you've been thinking about it, <laughs> what would you buy? Oh, I've put a lot of thoughts into this. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to go for the standard Surface Book or HoloLens because, you know, as, they're as awesome. Cool as a hol- Just like they, I'm they not going to tell a corned beef hash joke. <laughs> they are awesome. I definitely agree. But I've recently sort of got a new laptop and changed my monitor setup and all that so i'm kind of good as far as computing equipment goes uh-huh. so one thing i'd like to do i mean because i used to do well i still do quite a lot of the sound design work but most of it's been in the uh, digital arena and i've always fancied getting into um, analog synthesizers mm. and and you know five grand can go very quickly here yep so, th- so there's a couple of choices so there's one which i really like the look of which is the mini moog uh, voyager xl oh yeah it's it's a fantastic piece of kit. It's uh, it's basically the Moog uh, Voyager keyboard, but it's got an additional patch bay on it, so you can wire different parts of the um, outputs into different inputs mm-hmm. on the synth. So I mean, you're looking at about five grand for one of them, and and it kind of looks like a throwback too, right? Like it's like it looks like an old school Moog. It does, yeah, and it's got the got the wooden varnish panels as well. It looks great. Yeah. And more knobs and less push buttons. Yeah. Yeah. And something else I've always really wanted to get into is this whole sort of concept of the uh, modular um, modular analog synths. Like, like, you can get these like patch bays where you, you plug different modules in and then you can wire different outputs up to different inputs. And then you, you just feed a tone into it and just let the thing go completely crazy. So you can see why <laughs> where it fits in with my sort of circuit bending roots. Yeah. Yeah, right. And there's one particular company in Germany. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce. It. Is it Dopfer or Doepfer? I'm not sure. And and they do. Um, I'll, to, I'll send you the links in a moment. And they do um, a series of modular racks. And you can buy a starter kit, which might cost you say two and a half thousand euros. And then you can buy additional modules that you plug in from different companies because they're all built to a standard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, or failing that. Uh, Five thousand dollars worth of IMAX Force Awaken ticket, so I can see see it on repeat, <laughs> see it on repeat with my family and friends. <laughs> More Star Wars. I know. I'm having to wait until next Wednesday to see it, and it's absolutely killing me. Oh um, man, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to avoid the internet and humanity while. Uh, oh yeah, no, you're getting serious spoiler risks. I mean, you're going to get a few days after the movie comes out, but any longer than that, you're in trouble. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll be coming off Facebook for a few days until I've seen that film. Yep. Put on, put on the blast shield on your helmet and walk around blind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, let's uh, let's jump back into this because I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about the whole password-based key-derived function thing from uh, from RSA. This is like the best hashing approach you could do for passwords. Yeah. So this takes us on to the sort of the next level of hashing that we were talking about, and a password-based key derivation function. It sounds very complicated. But yes. in actuality, it's, it's very simple to use. And it's a similar concept to, to hashing with a salt, except you provide what's called a work factor. And that's a number. And it, so it could be you know 5,000, it could be 50,000. And what that does is when it hashes using the salt, it repeats it a number of times. Huh. So you say 5,000 times. And the idea behind this is you're deliberately trying to slow down the hashing process. Because as we were saying, um, GPUs, they can now process or you know, do billions of hashes a second. And Moore's laws, you know, you're always going to be you know, trying to escape Moore's law effectively. So by I- I- introducing a deliberate work factor, it means you might only be able to check one or two hashes a second, or depending on what your work factor is. Which is plenty fast for you allowing logins, but for somebody trying to rebuild a rainbow table, that sucks. It does. So what we're saying about, you know, trying to shift that ratio of risk, you know, trying to make it so much effort that, that, that the attacker just won't bother trying to right. attack you. I mean, this, this is a great way of doing that. Yeah, no, I, I, I love it. And, it, and, yeah. and it's sort of the approved approach, right? This is RSA saying, here's the thing to do. 
Absolutely, and it, and, it, and it's sitting there in in the .NET framework waiting for you. It's, nice. So it, I mean, it's it, already in the framework. It is, yeah. So it's got a. It, it's it's not a very well named class, to be fair. It's called the RFC two eight nine eight derived bytes object. So it's nice. completely non. So it's completely non obvious as to what it is, unless you. Sort I can't of know believe about we didn't RFC. all find it already. <laughs> Sounds very Microsoft. What framework exactly? Sounds and this is very Microsoft, I, doesn't it? And this is why I've been going around sort of um, doing user group talks and trying to sort of show developers just how easy these things are actually to use. Because, I mean, the whole idea of cryptography, it sounds very scary and threatening. I mean, I'm, I'm not a mathematician by any means. I mean, the stuff that sits underneath this is like, it's pure magic. It's really complex maths on, on a lot of cases. But to actually use it from a practical sense as a developer, a lot of it's actually very straightforward to use if you're just given a bit of guidance. Right. What function should I call? Exactly. So, I mean, to use RFC 2898 derived bytes, I mean, you pass in a byte array of the data you want to hash. So it might be a string with a password converted to a byte array. You pass in a salt, which is a random number. So that could be, say, 32 bytes of you know, pure random data. Right. And then a number of rounds, which is your work factor. And then you just construct that class, pass those things in, and you call get bytes, and you say how many bytes you want returned for your hash. And then that's it. You get a, so if you pass 32 bytes into get bytes, then you'll get a byte array, which is you know, 256 bits in length, and that is your hash that you store in your database. Nice. It's just a call. And after that, you know, you know you've protected the thing pretty well. You've made it hard for a, uh, a, a, a hacker to get anything useful from your stored hashes. And it doesn't make any difference to you after that because you're just calling the same function to check validate passwords. It'll, it'll work fine. Mm. Exactly. So, so the only sort of uh, complex decision you have is um, how many rounds you want to apply. Right. So you obviously, it's a trade-off. You don't want to have so many rounds that it just makes the system unusable or really slow to you. But then you don't want to have too few. That um, it's easy on the bad guy. It is. Yeah, it's easy on the bad guy. So, I mean, I mean, sometimes you, you can tell sometimes when a company is using one of these because if you go to log into a website and there's like a bit of a pause say, for a second or two. And it could just be sloppy coding on their point of view, but it could be that they're recalculating um, this um, this hash using a number of rounds and then trying to compare your password. Yeah, and it, I mean, it could be hundreds of thousands of iterations, depending on, you know, wh- how serious you've gotten here, because we got a lot of compute these days. There's an interesting article about the uh, Ashley Madison attack, and I think Troy might have mentioned this when he was on, um, where... Although they were compromised, they were using a password-based key derivation function called bcrypt. So it's kind of similar in principle to the one that's in .NET. So you pass in a byte array of your data, the salt, and a number of rounds. And their passwords were protected using bcrypt. So that's kind of, you know, good, good mm-hmm. on them. Mm-hmm. So their company may be completely corrupt and their business was a lie, but they encrypted passwords properly. <laughs> they did, but what, there, there was a, a group of hackers who tried to you know, attack the password database, and they couldn't. But as part of the hack, all the source code was stolen as well. And what they actually <laughs> noticed was that um, oh. <laughs> the developers, to, to try and make the logging in process more efficient, they calculated MD5 hashes and stored them in like a local token. Oh, no. So that they, so that they could make the, uh, the logging in process simple. So these hackers looked at that and went, well... We can't get past the bcrypt. That's just not going to be worth our time. But let's attack the MD5 hash. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah. So I think I, uh, I provided you a link uh, for the show notes to an Ars Technica article, which explains sort of about how this um, hacking group went to do it. And it just goes to show that, you know, it doesn't matter how much cool security you use. You're only as strong as your weakest link in the system. So if you right. put in a weak link like using MD5, even though you're using sort of bcrypt or a password-based key derivation function, your weakest point is still that MD5 hash. So you have to really sort of be, be careful how you use it. And you, you can imagine what was ha- what's happened. I mean, there's a developer who doesn't know much about hashing and he's probably been given the task of speeding up the logging in process, you know, and he's, he's gone and done exactly that. Right, he's just undermined the whole security aspect of it. Yeah, and it's, and it's due to, you know, possibly not knowing any better. Yeah. Hey, do we still use things like Rindle for creating symmetric keys? I remember that that was one of the um, uh, providers, crypto providers in the framework that they recommended, Microsoft recommended using when generating symmetric keys. 
Yeah, well, Rindale is uh, an encryption algorithm that was a precursor to the advanced encryption standard. Um, so th th there was a competition um, to come out with a new encryption standard, and it's called the advanced encryption standard. Mm -hmm. And Rindale was one of the submissions which eventually won the competition. Okay. So Rindale is effectively a precursor to AES, and AES algorithm itself is a, an encryption algorithm. So it's a two-way encryption process where you pass in the user's symmetric key. Or, you, or I should say you use the same key to encrypt and to decrypt. Right. Mm -hmm. but, it's not, but it's not necessarily a system for creating passwords or keys. Actually, was that what you said? Was that the original question? Yeah, okay. So, 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 all right. So the idea then, I guess what I'm walking into here is the sort of hybrid encryption model with uh, RSA and generating keys and then encrypting and decrypting with something like AES or Rindle. Right, okay. Yeah, so... Um, if you're moving on to doing actual encryption of data, so something like Rindell or AES, you know, it's, it's a two-way process. You use the same key to encrypt and to decrypt, right. and it's great for encrypting lots of data. It's brilliant at that. It's very algorithmic. It's very fast. But the complexity or the problem if you're using something like AES is how do you store that key? Mm. So how do, do you protect you, the key? Yeah, how do you protect the key? Do, do I, you know, so if me and Richard are trying to share some data that's encrypted, how do I get that key to you? Do I email it to you? Probably not a good idea. Do I give it to yeah. you on a USB stick? Do I put yeah. it on a share somewhere? Or do I encrypt that key with another key mm. and then send you it? But then how do I protect that key? Right. So that, that's one of the sort of the, the complexities of um, using what's called a symmetric encryption algorithm. But then on the flip side, we have um, asymmetric encryption using algorithms like RSA. And RSA is different to, say, AES, which is a more algorithmic approach. RSA is a more mathematical approach. Right. Mm -hmm. And when you generate a key in RSA, you generate what's called a key pair. So you have a private key and a public key. And those two keys are mathematically linked. So the public key, you can give to anyone. So if I want to encrypt some data um, with Richard, he encrypts that data using the public key. He sends me the data that is encrypted, and I decrypt it with that private key. And only I have that private key. I keep that safe. And that's great. Um, but the problem with RSA is it's, it's a fairly slow algorithm because it's, you know, it's more mathematical in nature as opposed to algorithmic. And um, you're limited to how much data you can encrypt in one go. So it's generally up to the length of the key size. Yeah. So you know that could be fine. You can get your data that you want to encrypt, and you can split it down into chunks, encrypt those chunks. But what you can do is what's called a hybrid encryption scheme where you use the power or the flexibility of both, say, RSA and AES together. So if I run down an example of how we do that sort of, sort of step by step. So you, first of all, you could generate a symmetric encryption key for AES and you use your secure password generator or, or the RND, crypto service provider class in .NET. Mm -hmm. So you generate your encryption key. You then encrypt your data using that encryption key. And then you encrypt that key using an RSA public key. Mm -hmm. And then when I send the data to someone to decrypt it, I send them that encrypted key and the encrypted data. And then right. they use their private key in RSA to decrypt that original key. Yep. Then once they've done that, they can use that original key to then go and decrypt their data. Right. So this gets so, over the slowness of the asymmetrical encryption problem because the only thing you're encrypting with it is the symmetrical key. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And then you, you can go a step further. So um, once you know, once I've sent you some data, you might then want to try and ensure that that data hasn't been corrupted along the way, or it's not been tampered with by sort of someone who's, you know, intercepted the message. So you can add a concept of integrity as well. And it, there's kind of two ways you can do this. So once you've encrypted that data using your generated key, you can then hash that encrypted data. Mm -hmm. And then you send that hash along with that sort of packet of data. And then the person on the other end can then recalculate that hash. But you can go a step further and you can do what's called an authenticated hash. Hmm. And, or it's called a HMAC. And the concept of this is very, it's almost identical to normal hashing. So what you do is you pass in a key when you do the hash. And that means the person on the other end of the, of the message for them to generate that same hash, they need that private key. Well, sorry, mm -hmm. not private key. They need that same generated key. So what you can do is when you um, first encrypt your data with that AES key that you generated, you then also create 
a hash mac or hmac of that data using that same key and you then go and encrypt it with the rsa um, public key right and the benefit of that is the person on the other end once they've recovered that key they then want to check that that data hasn't been corrupted but they can only do that if they're in possession of that key Mm. which they need their private key to do right so now the asymmetric encrypted packet has the symmetric key and the authentication hash it does so yeah. now you take the symmetric key you deep you decrypt the main body packet then you run the hash on it compare the hashes and now you know you've got you've got you're sure you've got the data now you heard about the NSA may have uh, they may have put a backdoor in RSA's cryptography you you did hear that report i think it was in 2014 um yes i think i vaguely remember reading about that yeah which is a kind of worrying a little bit and i think to the point where what was it true crypt or one of those things came out and declared that they were insecure because of it that's well, worth looking into i don't you know who knows but yeah i mean it's, I mean, it's difficult to know how to react to that isn't it so, it is yeah you don't really I mean, know if you're if, if you're a legitimate business you know doing legitimate things you know sort of storing financial data i mean is the risk of knowing that likely to stop you using it in your business? Mm. Probably not. But I mean, but if you're doing something quite nefarious and you're trying to encrypt some dodgy data, then that would actually sort of be something that could concern you because then, you know, you've got that risk that the government can actually sort of tap into what you're doing. Right. Well, and of course that's the argument in favor of the NSA as well is the, the overarching story is this idea that everybody deserves some privacy, uh, good guy or bad guy. Uh, and circumventing encryption, you know, now you're trusting that the NSA is going to manage that skill properly. And clearly they haven't because we know about it. Yeah, I mean, if they're supposed to be uh, sort of safeguarding and sort of checking our safety, I mean, who who checks checks on them? Right. Who, who, who can ensure that they're acting responsibly? And, you know, as we've sort of seen with a lot of the, the leaks and revelations that are coming out, that people like the NSA and even... You know the the services in the UK like um, GCHQ aren't you know they're not being totally honest. Yeah. So I mean, are there other encryption algorithms we should be using that we think aren't breached? Um. So there's, I mean, RSA is the main one in .NET. I mean, there is another right. one called elliptic curve cryptography, which is a similar concept. So private public key, um, but the keys are smaller, which give you the same level of uh, same level of security. Um. If I'm totally honest, I've not used elliptic curve cryptography that much. Yeah. So I probably not best qualified to say whether it's as secure or less secure as uh, RSA. Well, you know, if the NSA has their hands in a in RSA, everybody's screwed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's only so far we can go with all that. There, there is a set. Of, I was just reading a piece recently that was talking about this sort of. There's a set of standards for if you're doing encryption properly, these are all the things you're supposed to be doing. And then they've recently. And now it's like, well, quantum computing is pretty close now, so we're not sure that complying with this standard makes sense. We're going to have to develop a new standard. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things you you, you can't predict the future. So right. I mean, no, is, is is quantum computing going to be a threat at some point in the future? To I, security, maybe, but I mean, I thought about this a little bit, and if you think about it, you know, if we have quantum computers, we can use them to encrypt as powerfully as people can use them to decrypt or to hack. So I think the whole landscape of encryption will change if you've got those kind of computers out there busting up, you know, what we're currently using today. It just changes the game for everybody, but we certainly would have to change it on the secure side as well. But it's going to depend. It's the asymmetry of this, right? The NSA will have the quantum computer first, <laughs> and they'll be able to breach everything. You know, it's, until everybody has them, it's not going to be equal ground. Right. I'll include a link to this article from the NSA themselves saying, talking about what they call sweet B cryptography hmm. and basically saying, this is our best standard. You shouldn't bother complying with it if you're not already compliant with it because we feel that quantum computing is going to breach it and we're going to have to come up with quantum resistant algorithms. Yeah. That's probably not our problem today. We're still working on SQL injection breaches. <laughs> yeah, it's going to make for some great news stories, though. And I think it's going to be a while until a lot of this uh, sort of filters down to us sort of real-world developers as well. Right. 
So, Stephen, what's next for you? What's in your inbox? Uh, so, uh, so I've got a couple of uh, resources out there which might help people understand hybrid cryptography because it's, it's obviously it's quite difficult to convey it on a podcast and sort of not have some code in front of you. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's a book that I've written for Syncfusion um, called Cryptography in .NET Succinctly. It's a, it's a free download. It doesn't cost you anything. And it talks a lot about what we've discussed today. Uh, but it also comes with a lot of code as well. Uh, sample code and you can just sort of take that code and start using it in your in your solutions and start playing around with it to understand these concepts mm-hmm. and i've also uh, developed a pluralsight course called uh, practical cryptography in net and it's it takes a more considered approach to the book because the book was designed to be read very quickly uh, whereas the pluralsight course uh, takes you through in a lot more detail with yeah. a lot more examples sort of showing you how all this stuff fits together mm-hmm. and it takes the hybrid encryption a lot further um, so it covers the authenticated hashing that we talked about, but it also talks about digitally signing the messages as well, mm-hmm. which is something that we wouldn't have time to talk about today, but it, it sort of explains how all that works and then gives you the code for doing it. Very good. Well, Stephen, thank you very much for being with us today. It's been great. Great. Thank you very much. And uh, you say the show's coming out halfway through NDC? Yeah. It's Thursday yeah, so, right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the time shift problem. Yeah. So... So if you're listening to this today at NDC, then um, I'm going to be at the conference. Uh, there's a, a, a community and user groups area, and there's going to be me and a group of others talking about the benefits of different user groups, promoting our own user groups, and sort of giving people guidance on how to set up their own user groups. So if people want to come along to that and have a chat to us, that would be fantastic. And we're located actually just next to where you guys are recording .NET Rocks. Great. So if people want to come along, that would be fantastic. All right. We'll see you there, and we'll see you, dear listener, next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.